Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording from various locations around Winnipeg. We would like to acknowledge we are in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. In this episode, we will be discussing Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, which was selected by you, dear readers, in a poll on our Facebook group. I'm Dennis. I normally work at the Idea Mill, and I'm a Beth. Across the screen for me is... Hi, everyone. My name's Kirsten, and I am normally found at the Harvey Smith Library. And I grew up thinking I was a Meg. And across the screen from me is... Hi, everyone. My name's Trevor, and normally you'd find me at the Louis Riel Library. And I'd like to think of myself as a Joe, but I think I'm mostly a Meg. And across the screen for me is... Hi everyone, I'm Erica. I'm usually at the Fort Gary Library. I thought that I was a cross between Joe and Beth, but one quiz that said I was an Amy and the other quiz online said that I was a Meg. So there you go. Who knows? <laughs> you are all of them. <laughs> Apparently. A good book can carry me away from an And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. We love receiving your questions and comments because they add so much to our discussions. Let us know how you feel about the books we're reading by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leaving a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and other fine podcasting services. Be sure to stick around for our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Also, we have a special poetry break lined up, too. In a minute, Erica is going to spoil everything by giving us a summary of this month's book. But first, Kirsten will give us a bio of the author. Yes, I'm grateful that you didn't say a brief bio, because holy moly, one once again, such an interesting human being. Louisa May Alcott born 1832. Her father was a transcendentalist and educator Amos Bronson Alcott, and her mother, Abba May, was a social worker, one of the first professional social workers in the United States. Uh, Louisa was the second of four daughters. Sound familiar? Her father's opinions on education and his tough views on child rearing really helped shape her desire to achieve perfection, which was a goal of the transcendentalists. Most of her schooling came from her parents, but she also studied under Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who were all transcendentalists. Journalist and uh, feminist Margaret Fuller and educator Elizabeth Peabody were also friends of the family because, yes, they were also transcendentalists. In 1843, Amos, the father, uh, packed up the Alcott family and they began a utopian commune in Harvard, Massachusetts called Fruitlands. They didn't know anything about farming and they refused to use any animals to work the land. They also didn't use any products that had been derived from slave labor. They were vegetarians, but they were vegetarians of a very special type. They ate only vegetables that grew upward, never those like <laughs> potatoes that grew downward. They had no contact with alcohol or milk. It belonged to cows, after all. They took only cold baths and never warm. Perhaps not surprisingly... Sounds great. Perhaps not surprisingly... Fruit, Started off well. Fruitlands failed uh, after about eight months. <laughs> oh, I wonder why. Um, it never did take off. <laughs> A few years later, in 1847... The Alcott family operated as station masters for, as one of the stops on the Underground Railroad, and they housed a escaping slave during that time for a short period. 
Uh, she be- first became a published writer at the age of 19 when a woman's magazine printed one of her poems. Uh, she used the pen name Flora Fairfield during that time. But by age 22, she was starting to use her own name for writing. Although you can now find uh, many of her gothic pulp fiction novels under her other pen name, A.M. Barnard. And these novels were much more focused on spies and revenge, and they were passionate and fiery. And they had titles like A Long Fateful Love Chase and Pauline's Passion and Punishment. And you can actually <laughs> still find A Long Fateful Love Chase. I think it was actually published after her death. But the protagonists um, for a, a lot of these books are actually quite strong. They're smart. They introduced readers to um, a much more educated and strong female heroine. And she frequently also wrote in her journals about going on long walks and runs So she certainly challenged a lot of prevailing social norms around gender, and she encouraged her young readers to run as well, which I thought was interesting. You don't hear about a lot of females in the in in the late 1800s running. She was an abolitionist, a feminist. She remained unmarried all of her life. She had an interview where she explained her spinsterhood. That was her her words. She said, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls, but never once the least bit with any man. She was very steadfast in her desire never to marry. She said, I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe. She died at the age of 55 of a stroke. And that is Louisa May Alcott. Wow. Fascinating, fascinating mm. woman. I had no mm. idea. Yeah, me neither. Especially with all the all the family connections and stuff to the other big names of the time. Absolutely. That actually explains a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So this summary actually has no spoilers in it. I don't talk about the plot. I just talk about... Um, sort of the ideas in the book, and it was adapted from the back of the edition that I have. Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy are four sisters caught between childhood dreams and the realities of adulthood as they come of age in New England during and after the Civil War. Pastors' daughters, raised in integrity and virtue, but also love and imagination, they negotiate the choices that will either narrow or expand their destinies. Inspired by the author's life, Little Women transcends genre, gender, and class, with its examination of personal quests, societal and religious restrictions, family ties, and the growing pains of becoming an adult. Nice. It's general. (laughs) Yeah. It's a high-level summary. (laughs) I didn't want to get... I don't know. I didn't want to get into, like, and then Meg did this, and then Joe did this, and then this (laughs) happened. Because, I don't know, most people are kind of familiar with the rough framework of the story. So I kind of wanted to give everybody an idea, if they haven't read it, of the sort of themes rather than the, you know, the way that they manifest in the Mm -hmm. plot, if that makes sense. Have you guys all read this one before? Were you familiar with it before we uh, had it selected in our poll? I think I read it as a kid. I didn't remember Hmm. 90% of it, Hmm. especially all the like moral teachings and like the long descriptions and the poems and the songs. Yeah. I'm like, if I read, if I didn't just super skip over those, I either skimmed them and like had no idea what the words meant or, or what. Um, I had vague memories of different parts of it, but for all intents and purposes for me, this was a first reading. I did read it probably when I was about nine or 10 and it had a large influence on me. Um, although as I was sort of rereading it, I thought, I don't think I read the second part. I'm fairly sure I just stuck to the first part. And that's probably a good way to go. Read Little Women and leave Good Wives yeah. or whatever it's called aside. I was, I was like, I thought I was always under the impression that Joe stayed single. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. So... I guess I must not have read the second half either. 
I, yeah, I really don't think of that, I, that I did. And because I grew up with three sisters, so there were four of us. So it just had this, and then the book sort of made its way through, through my family. And, you know, so that's why I said too, growing up, I always saw myself as Meg because I was sort of the eldest, but I also was quite bossy and I, you know, <laughs> took care of my, sisters or so I thought and my sister Carrie really <laughs> embraced the role of Joe and not that my other sisters were really Beth and Amy but that's just what they were left with um so but there were <laughs> there were lots of things in the book that that did affect me and influence me certainly like you know starting little uh, like doing performances and and that type of mm-hmm. thing and writing and having sort of a secret club or society, those things mm-hmm. um, definitely did, did influence me. Mm-hmm. How about you, Trevor? Well, I'll tell you this. I never had any interest at all uh-huh. in this book. I think part of it had to do with like the title I found super <laughs> off-putting because like I always thought little women was kind of like a derogatory term. Like, you know, somebody says, well, how's the little woman, you know, referring to somebody's wife or something. And I thought, yeah. Like it's done. So I just, and also like, I don't know, I was busy, you know, reading comic books and writing my Sherlock around St. James. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes took up all my time reading. So I, I w- had no interest. I didn't see the 94 version with Susan Sarandon, but I have to tell you that uh, about, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago now, I guess, I saw a trailer for the Greta Gerwig movie when I was in a theater and I didn't know what it was at first because I, I was, but from the opening frame of the trailer, I was hooked. I was like, mm-hmm. my God, like, Every single frame of this looks like a painting. And then, uh, despite the fact it had that guy, Timothée Chalamet, uh, who, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that guy. Uh, he was in it. But I was like, yeah, I could, I, I could overlook that, I said to myself. And then when it said Little Women, I was like, well, well damn it, now I'm going to have to see Little Women. And I did. <laughs> And, and, and I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. I have to confess, though, that I've only gotten halfway through the book. Uh, which it was called part one, but I feel okay about that yes. because it originally it was published as Little Women, full stop. And then the second part came out a year later and it was called Good Wives. Yeah. So I can honestly look you guys in the eye and say, I've read Little Women. Absolutely. I oh, just yeah. haven't yeah. read, I just haven't read all of Little Women. Yeah. But, uh, I know it, how it is. It's ends. very much two yeah. books. It's a very yeah. much two books. Oh, you, for can, sure. you can tell a difference in the writing style and in what she's trying to say and everything. So, yeah. yeah, I I have to admit I still can't say that I've read it because I, despite my best <gasps> intentions, <laughs> it's okay. some months it's just it's it's hard to get going. There's this neat feature in Libby where uh, the, like the Libby app, which is what I was using to read this, where if you press on the middle of the page, it'll bring up a little menu, and if you press on the little icon, it'll show you how long you've been reading. And how long it will probably take you to read the book. <laughs> so, what, well, it can, it can work both ways. So when I first looked at it, it said, oh, you've been reading for like five minutes. And at this pace, it'll take you 12, 13 hours to read oh it. Oh, my God. But then it will also show you, based on when you started reading it, so how frequently you're reading, how long it will take. <laughs> And uh, because I had picked it up and been reading in dribs and drabs, it said, at this pace, you will finish in another two years. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. And that was a little discouraging. That is super um, discouraging. I did watch the 1994 film version with Winona Ryder and uh, Susan Sarandon. So all of my insights will come from there and the little bits that I've managed to read about the book. But yeah, that's acceptable. Yes. We've always said, we've always said you don't have to finish the book to participate in a book club. Yeah. We've always said that. Yeah. Yeah. Because people should read what they want. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even have to start it either. You can just just join in. And yeah. It's not because I didn't wasn't enjoying the little bits that I read. It's just life gets in the way Absolutely. sometimes. Absolutely. Oh, know. sure. Yeah. Totally. But also it. this one, like, as soon as I started it, I'm like, this is really preachy. Mm. I was like, <laughs> like, oh, they're going to be so perfect and stuff like this. And like, it, it was it was a chunk of pages in before I was like, okay, that's like, that's not like, that's not how this is going to continue being. But I had to get over that initial, like, I don't remember it being this pious. I'm like, ah, but. um, I I skipped over a bunch of the, you know, the 
the songs or the poems or some of those things too, just to yeah. get to the, the story. Yeah. But then I do remember a lot of the parts of the story, but I have to say, once I started doing some research about Louisa May Alcott, and I started finding out more and more about her, I actually was then reading the book with a much different frame of mind as well, because yeah. I really mm -hmm. did see Joe as Louisa May Alcott. And Louisa yeah. May Alcott did not want to write this book. She needed to write this book. Her publisher told her she should to make money for the family because her father just really wasn't... <laughs> Didn't have the best ideas um, on how to support the family. So a lot of her story really does come through this story. And I don't think I really realized yeah. that. I mean, everything I've since read, everyone seems to know that, that, that it is quite biographical. But uh, I didn't yeah. realize that. And then just the whole, you know, how strong her own mother was, Louisa May's mother. And the fact that, uh, I mean, some of the stuff that I read her own mother really felt not happy with her husband's inability to sort of contribute to the family. And uh, she, I think she passed that down to, to her daughters. And I think Louisa May, actually, one of her sisters did die as well of, yeah. So there's yeah. so much, yeah. so much, yeah. It's fictionalized in some ways. How I ended up taking a lot of pleasure reading it was to read it as, like, aspirational, rather than like all these perfect people trying to be perfect and you all the women should always be perfect and be blamed for everything all the time. But yeah, I read it as aspirational, like a hero story. Like these are remarkable people who did remarkable things, even though it was sort of in a quiet, in a quiet, just living their lives kind of way as like role models rather than preaching everybody should be like this or you're bad. So mm -hmm. I actually found it very inspiring. Joe and Laurie made the story for me. Yeah. All of the pranks and the like way they like swatted each other and were ridiculous together. Yeah. Those were the most captivating parts. Yeah, I have to say Lori was much more charming and likable in the novel than than in the Greta Gerwig movie, I thought. I I thought that uh uh you know, he was this kind of yeah, like a tease and a prankster, but you can really tell there was such a close, strong bond between Lori and Joe that was just pure friendship and, and love, but not maybe romantic love, but a different kind of just a strong, strong bond that was just lovely to see and, and watch this friendship go through all of its ups and downs for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, that just her presenting this story about women and their relationships and their dreams and their aspirations and their skills and their relationships and have it be so focused on women. I don't think that that happened very much <laughs> back in the 18, no. uh, 1860s. Uh, I think it was written in 68, but she definitely didn't want to write. She didn't want Joe to get married. Yeah. And you can really feel that in the story too. Like, when I was watching the movie version of it and she marries the professor uh, or agrees to marry the professor, I was like, really? I, I, I didn't see that for her character. It just felt like, no, this is a woman who is going to stand on her own mm -hmm. as long, as long as she can. And the fact, the way that happened was just kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cause and, I, she and, felt and I it was weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to keep gushing about the Greta Gerwig movie, but uh, it, this is a bit spoilery for the ending. But what's what I love, love, love about that movie is that she there's many scenes between her and Mr. Dashwood, her publisher, where he's always giving her advice like everyone has to be married if they're female by the end. And mm -hmm. she's like, well, that's that's dumb. And so he, he said, I'll publish this, but the main character has to get married. And she's all like, oh, okay, because she's writing the the plot device for the movie is that uh, Joe is writing Little Women, so it kind of like conflates the novel. With with her telling the story. And so she writes a scene where Joe does marry the professor and it's all super schmaltzy. And there's a scene where they're under the umbrella and the music swells. It's just your typical Hollywood ridiculousness. And then she says, like, fine, like here's your stupid ending. And then <laughs> what I love about the movie is that it's not explicit in the movie that she actually marries the professor. At the end, they show her running the school spoilers uh, and the professor's there, but it never actually explicitly shows a wedding scene or anything. 
and I just thought, wow, that's awesome. You know, that Joe, maybe, maybe Greta Gerwig has given, uh, uh, the story, the ending that Louisa May Alcott wanted to give it, but like, you know, 150 years later, uh, so yeah, I can't say, you know, if we just do a separate podcast on Greta Gerwig's, uh, Little Women, I've got lots of thoughts, <laughs> but, uh, uh I'm not going to say more. Well, uh, I read I, too much else. I read um, that Greta Gerwig said that uh, growing up, she was inspired by Joe, like as a young girl, she was inspired by Joe. As a woman, she's been inspired by Louisa May Alcott. So that ending mm-hmm. kind of does make sense when you think about that, that she's really sort of bringing mm-hmm. that that together. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of this conversation also kind of leads to one of the questions that we asked on our social media. Do you think Little Women is a feminist piece of work? Yeah, I know that one of for its time. Let's let's yeah yeah let's qualify by saying yes for its time. Absolutely. Yeah. Not that it's perfect Mm -mm. in that regard, Mm -hmm. but pretty remarkable for that. Yeah, eighteen sixties. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, you know, well, I got all caught up in this question because I was thinking, well, then what, what actually makes a piece of art or literature feminist? Uh, and or do we just apply a feminist uh, filter to certain pieces of art and see? So that's what I tried to do. But and uh, you know, yes, there's strong female characters. The male characters are almost secondary, and the father is pretty ineffective in it. And then I thought back to when we did Fun Home and the the Bechtel test. So I thought, does this book pass the Bechtel test? And I had to refresh my memory what the Bechtel test was, and it was: are there at least two characters who are women who have names? So yes, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and they have a conversation with each other. Yes, oh yes, about something other than men. Well, yes, the whole Absolutely. book is just them talking about their hopes and dreams <laughs> and stuff. So yeah, this thing not only passes the Bechtel test, uh, it passes it with uh, flying colors. So I don't know if that's how you should judge whether a thing's feminist or not, but it uh, you know it does pass that. So that's all I know. I think I think that was like a bare minimum kind of thing. <laughs> it's one criteria. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's, so yes, exactly. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, the, the more that I read about Louisa May Alcott's upbringing and her strong, her own strong mother and then these strong, these family friends who were feminists, like I think it couldn't help but sort of have that come through the book. But yeah, it's more for its time because throughout it still talks about you know, you still, you know, your end result is still to get married or, you yeah. know, to be. And then your duty is, yeah, your duty is to your husband yeah. and not to your own. Yeah. Your duty is to your children yeah. and your duty is to honoring your parents. Yes. And your father and the, you know, the poor boys in the war and, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. uh, actually, Louise yeah. May Alcott also worked as a nurse at the beginning of the U.S. Civil War. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But there was also... Of course, lots of commentary on how things are different for men and for women and just pointing out the, the biases of society and how, you know, boys are treated differently than girls and stuff like that. So, And I found it interesting, too, Kirsten, when you were reading the biography about uh, her friendships with famous sort of thinkers of the day like uh, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson. And then it made me think. Well, then if she was forced to marry off Joe in the book, she chose kind of like an older professor type. And I thought, well, that kind of checks out then, because if she knows people like Thoreau and Emerson, she probably admired them to a certain extent and and learned from them and thought, you know, if I had to marry somebody, I'd mm-hmm. maybe marry a Emerson or, or a Thoreau type. And so it kind of all mm-hmm. kind of kind of made sense in my head just listening to you give it the bio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um this was such a popular book, like while she was alive. It was very, 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 very popular. And the ending of book part one is that Joe refuses Laurie. And the readers were just outraged about that. And they were just <laughs> writing her and visiting her and uh, Louisa May Alcott to say, please, you know, they need to get married. They should get back together. And I think that... I mean, Louisa, I, I also read something about how Louisa May Alcott actually pretended to be a servant in her own house because there were so many people <laughs> coming to the door um, wanting to talk to her oh, about no. this ending. So, 
I mean, I do think it's interesting, especially if we, we are talking about some of the things that it does raise for the time, it being quite unique and unusual, and it's still, and it being so popular. I wonder if those uh, were the same irate fans that were writing to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle about him <laughs> killing, off, killing off Sherlock Holmes <laughs> and forcing him to bring him back there. Yeah, it's r- <laughs> b- roughly the same era. And probably, like every day. They sat down and they wrote one letter to Alcott and one letter to Conan Doyle. Well, sent it, them worked. Off. it worked. Yeah. And you'd think Public like pressure. today authors have to deal with people on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, but they at least usually don't have people knocking on their door and saying, hey, I got to <laughs> sure. talk to you about this character. <laughs> or maybe they still do. I don't maybe know. They I, do. I know Stephen King has uh, talked about sometimes like he has a gate on his house and part of the reason why is you know, people will just come right up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, let's go to another question that we had asked. Have you ever been in a secret society like the March Sisters Pickwick Club? And if so, can you talk about it? <laughs> you mean other than our Facebook group? <laughs> yeah. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> our not-so-secret secret society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Inspired by this book and being the Meg character, I was like, okay, we're going to start a secret society. Let's go, sisters. And um, I think I've, I've even talked about this in terms of like with reading The Secret Seven or Harriet the Spy. Like I really, really wanted to have sort of a group that then, you know, had a had a clubhouse and collected dues and ate ginger toffee or whatever it was, ginger beer or ginger tea. I don't know what it was, something gingery. But inspired by by Little Women, though, then I also, you know, I wanted then to gather my sisters and then have us put on also these extravagant theater productions and musical productions. We did this whole kind of choreographed dance and none of us actually even took dance but anyway we did this choreographed dance to you know (laughs) the beethoven but the disco version it starts off beethoven and then it turns disco anyway that was the surprise to the delight of the adults (laughs) in our life so i don't know if it was really secret or there's no video footage of this unfortunately No. Yeah, yeah. No video footage from that. <laughs> Although there is this, you we know, have this I, great, we have this great photograph of a friend of ours. He, he had taken a picture of me and I'm whispering into my sister Heidi's ear because she's about to go on to stage because she is the poor man in Good King Wenceslas. So I'm giving her stage direction. And Han-Laura is up above kind of listening in as well. So that just sort of captures the Meg, you know, persona that I was giving the stage direction. And okay, mm-hmm. go. <laughs> That's awesome. That's adorable. Uh, I, I, I sort of have a secret society story. Uh, I'm just a little afraid sharing it because, of course, secret society should be secret. But I, I can tell this. When I was in junior high, there was this guy that was like a grade older than me. Uh, and I kind of knew him through church. And he was moving away. So he said, do you, do you want, a, do you want a, a job that pays $5? Uh, I think it was $5 a month. And at that time, I was like, yeah, okay, because I could use $5 a month. And what it was... There's this organization and uh, called the Eastern Star, and I think they're like an offshoot of the Masons. I never really oh, figured it out, yeah. but I think it was like, like, but like for women, I think they're like Lady Masons. Mm-hmm. The but order, I'm not yeah, sure. Right. Is that the Joe so Daughters thing was, too? Yeah. I don't know. I anyway. don't know. But they met at this local church, not our own church, but a different church. And and the thing was, is all of their paraphernalia was kept in the basement. Um, but they like to have their meetings up on the upper hall. So they would hire a young person, myself, or the guy in the grade ahead of me, to go every month early to open the, the, the closet, take out all the paraphernalia, and set it up in a particular way. Oh my god. Um, but I, I wasn't supposed to, I was, I wasn't supposed to look at it, but I did notice that there was like a, there was like a pentagram on the ground, and then there was like, symbolism of like 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 wheat or like there's a crown and sword like all this kind of masonic stuff that i had to set up and then these older ladies arrived and would pay me five dollars cash in an envelope and then i would i was i had to leave i couldn't stay for the meetings and then i'm not sure how the stuff all got put away at the end but i guess maybe they did because they were all there but but it was very important that the whole room was set up exactly this way every time and i did this without really thinking too much about it for about a year, 
until the Eastern Star Ladies had a cabinet built on the upper floor. And so then they didn't need me to carry the stuff up the stairs anymore. They, the, the cabinet was in the same room. And then I, so then I got, I got sort of uh, made redundant by a, a new cabinet. <laughs> but oh uh, yeah, so I mean, again, I, I'm just, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what was going on there. But uh, but that was my close brush with, uh, you know, a secret society. I, I didn't like it. Whoa. No. <laughs> I didn't like it. So the Eastern Star. I don't know. Star... It sounds like you came out ahead and financially on it. Yeah, yeah it's true. I did. You the, know, the Eastern Star is usually Venus, if that helps. It's named after the the star that you see right after the sun goes down. Okay. Is hmm. or and or I, comes up. So that's I can only hope Venus. that it's sort of like a, a group that you know does charity work and you know in the community. Like I imagine they're not the, evil. Don't worry. No, the pentagram put me off a bit, but I imagine <laughs> they, you know a five pointed star. You know, it does not that's necessarily mean witchcraft. Nope. No, no. We've got, I've got a coworker who uh, is a member of Eastern Star. It's a fine charitable organization. Oh, okay, great, it's great, nothing great. Sinister don't worry. At all. Uh, I just okay because I'm afraid that this may be the, my last podcast if the says I've been spilling Eastern Star secrets. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been nice. How long you did guys. you keep that secret, though? How long did you keep that secret? Would you say? Well, I <laughs> I said this the first right time now. I told this story <laughs> in about thirty years. So that's I mean that's long enough. Yeah, I, I'm sure all the ladies that were in it then are probably dead. If they come back for you, it's a whole other thing to worry <laughs> oh about. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I was never part of a secret society, even though I always wanted to be. Mm. But I wasn't aware of any around me, probably because they were really secret. And uh, yeah, I, I would have liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been fun to have like secret handshakes and all that. I, I never thought to take the initiative and make one myself like you did, Kirsten. Oh, that, yeah. that was that I was, was Meg, good. I tell you, bossy. Well, this is how we always saw Meg, was that <laughs> she was this bossy person that told everyone what to do. But maybe that's just because that's what my how my sisters saw <laughs> saw it. Because mm-hmm. of me. <laughs> so Little Women was published in 1868 and is still beloved today. What do you think makes a book a classic? Um, when it talks about things that don't really change. Like yeah. kids, kids are kids, especially when she was describing the grandbabies and stuff at the end and they're three years old and they're being ridiculous. Kids will be kids and, you know, girls are girls most of the time in kind of a generalized way. And, you know, people are always just trying their best to look after their loved ones and themselves and not be terrible people and, yeah, think about the world and their place in it. So when you write something, maybe that's so true to, to your own life, it can't help but be generalizable. Is that a word? Yeah. To yeah. other people's lives. So yeah. universalism is what yeah. you're saying. Um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they that there were, you know, these four women, well, really more than that, but like the the, the, the four sisters, you know, so I, and they all were such different characters. So there were a lot of different personalities that many of us could relate to. And I think that maybe the whole relatable thing is also, yeah, like you said, at Onevermorio <laughs> from uh, Instagram commented on most of our questions, actually, and she had this to say about the cl- uh, whether what makes a classic. She said, I think there are lots of ingredients to make a classic, but I think one of the most important things is an ensemble of characters, or at least protagonists, that is fully realized with an arc that the reader can get behind, or at least care about. And I mean, I guess, yeah, the fact, yeah, over the ages, too, you know. Well, and the fact that it's, you know, then it's just been made and adapted into so many different things. Like I read that there was like a 48 episode anime series <laughs> about little women, you know, like wow. it just in all sorts I, of different I've, ways. I've watched a few of those. <laughs> I, yeah. They're really yeah. weird because they introduce a whole bunch of new characters and these subplots that, but then eventually it does get to the, the plot of the novel, but that does, that takes like up to, <laughs> that doesn't start till episode 18 or so. Like there's yeah. 17 episodes of this weird backstory. It, yeah, it's, it's really trippy. <laughs> It's available yeah. on uh, Hoopla, actually. There if you anyone's go. interested in, <laughs> oh, nice. in, in, in burning one of their uh, boroughs on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and w- with classics, I always think, too, that there's something about if it stands the test of time, that uh, if it still has something relevant and interesting to say to different generations, then that also kind of makes it a classic. And 
So a term that I don't like is something whenever someone calls something an instant classic. Because to me, yeah. that's like an oxymoron. That's like almost as bad as unputdownable. Uh, the way that, that, that bugs Erica. So yeah, instant like classic. So something that's been around. Yeah. So that's that's sort of what I think about it. It's sort of after a hundred years yeah. or so. I don't know any given time if something is still being talked about or uh, people are enjoying. Yeah, that's what I got. Another question we asked was related to Beth. So Beth longed to learn music. If money and time weren't an object and you could take lessons or classes in anything, what would you learn and why? Well, we had lots of responses for that on our social media, and it seems like uh, lots of people would like to perhaps take up a musical instrument. So Amanda Rogo said, the cello, hands down. And Jennifer Allard, 73, said, uh, the violin. It always It's always seemed so beautiful to me. Beautiful once you've actually learned how to play the violin, but I've heard so many people <laughs> when they're just first learning, it's not the most beautiful sound. <laughs> I've got a good violin story. Uh, when I was in high school, we put on a play and I played the part of Henny Oldman, who was a riff on the comedian Henny Youngman. Yeah. Um, Clever. And the the character carried around a violin and after making a joke would saw away on the violin in a most unmusical way. <laughs> and I was having a lot of fun with that. But as I kept doing this because I was goofing around, I, suddenly my the uh, actual owner of the violin was like, you know, you, you should probably stop because you're getting better and you don't want to get better. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Ooh, there might be some natural talent. <laughs> that you have <laughs> no probably dumb luck but uh you know they wanted it to be very rough very sounding. rough yeah um yeah. I, I already play a couple of instruments but uh i would want to learn more instruments mm -hmm. uh if i could if i didn't have to worry about time or money mm -hmm. i would be playing instruments doing better at composing and producing mm -hmm. i'd want to draw and make animations and like the the question we left it really broad, yeah. but if there was no limit on time and money, I would just keep learning things because it's so much fun. Here, here. I'd want to learn carpentry and and sewing, and you know, I I would want to write like Joe. Like I've always yeah. wanted to write, but I've never had the patience for it. But mm -hmm. you know, give me enough time, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe. You need uh, a you need a writing smock. That'll that'll do it for you. If you had a smock, a writing like hers, smock. Yeah, if you had a smock like uh, that she wore for, for cleaning her pens as she's writing, like that's going to be the, you know, the, you need the right accoutrement. And then you'll be I good to I knew I was missing something and it was right there <laughs> in this the book. smock. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever she called it. No, no, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, one of the sort of sobering things about the whole uh, being pandemic and things is that people at the beginning of it thought, oh, we have all this time. We're going to learn new things or do things about People are like me. Here we are, you know, starting to come out of it and haven't really. Uh, this is what I've done. Like a weird dad, I downloaded a flight simulator to my computer because I wanted to teach myself <laughs> how to fly an airplane. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, I tell you what, it, it, that sounds like a great idea. But I, I, I got the uh, the demo. Uh, I can't get that thing off the ground. I keep crashing. <laughs> I keep crashing the Cessna on the uh, runway. Like I've died dozens of times. That's right. You practice oh. on the simulator first. Yeah, that's yeah. why so, you have a simulator, yeah. and they don't there, just give you an airplane. There's a spot where you can cheat, and you can just jump to where you're already in the air. And I'm good at getting good with that. Like I can fly it when it's already up there, <laughs> but I can't take off and I can't land. So I think oh I need to master goodness. those two things before I really get into a cockpit. So. Wow. <laughs> those are the most challenging parts of flying. In a similar vein, there's a game out there called Kerbal Space Program, where you try to design and launch rockets. And um, apparently, it does a really good job of simulating a lot of the issues with orbital mechanics and, and spaceship design and stuff like that. So, you know, if you want to step up once you learn how to land and, and take off, then you can start working on your uh, astronaut skills. <laughs> oh, man. Just wait. That'd be awesome. There's a wonderful line in The West Wing that I think of and I quote all the time where President Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, is saying, I would have made a good astronaut. And his wife, played by Carol Channing, says, you're afraid of enclosed spaces, heights, 
and fire. <laughs> and he says, yeah, but I would have been good. <laughs> we just ignore that other stuff, but it's fine. Scout a boot. Uh, said on Instagram that I would learn Swedish so I could converse with my niece and nephew in their mother's tongue. And oh. I think I, I agree nice. with uh, Scout a boot. I think I would, yeah, want to um, learn a few, yeah, a few more languages, like maybe uh, get my French up to up to par and uh, maybe learn mm. Spanish and... You would get your French up to par, Levy. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. French puns. <laughs> and Winnie City said, um, I really want to learn to knit. A good way to keep my hands busy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have taken up some of those types of types of skills during this pandemic. So before we move on, uh, does anyone have anything else they wanted to say about this book or the story or anything related to it? You know, one thing I really, I liked and I thought, and I didn't notice this obviously the first time I read it when I was nine or whatever, but when Marmy and Joe had that conversation about anger, anger issues, <laughs> that, and Marmy hmm. says, I've been angry almost every day of my life because Joe's having a really hard time sort of controlling her outbursts. And, and I just thought that was interesting. And I almost, I mean, you know, sort of then the, the, the advice that Marmy gives, maybe I don't necessarily agree with, but I did like that they were talking about anger and that we have anger and, mm-hmm. and it's okay. And how, and then checking in, how are you doing with that? Or noticing like, good job. You know, I noticed you sort of, you know, have been doing other things, coping skills to deal with your anger. I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was yeah. really neat. Like, they all acknowledged each other's faults, but, like, they accepted them. Mm-hmm. They accepted each other's faults, but at the same time saying, but, you know, you really need to get that under control because yeah. it's going to take over your life otherwise. Yeah. And then they would notice yeah. steps being taken. Yeah. And they would say, you're, you know, you're yeah. doing great with that. Or I noticed that, that you put that effort in and that was, yeah, yeah. that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and just yeah. thinking about that scene between Marmy and Joe, uh, it was remarkable when I read that, too, because... I remember that scene in the Greta Gerwig movie, and I just thought, what a great, real, modern-feeling scene that was. And I thought when I saw the movie, oh, this is just her take on it. And then when I actually read those very words, like, I'm angry almost every day, I could just hear Laura Dern saying those words in the movie, and I was impressed with how many uh, lines of dialogue and things were lifted, actually, right from the novel, Mm -hmm. but in the screenplay, and it just made me love that movie even more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and that did make me think of Louisa May Alcott's real mother, you know, because I think she was also angry every single day as well, because I think she was quite frustrated with her, you know, the, the relationship and her, her lot in life. And because um, obviously she was a very educated, smart, capable woman who was doing already lots of amazing things for that time period. Interesting. Women and anger. Very interesting. <laughs> some things don't change well yeah and you know and and, and and that's why i said i didn't totally agree with marmy's take on it because i mean i think that it's also okay to embrace some of that anger and um and accept it and work with it well, before we move on to our book recommendations i think it's time for our special poetry break which this episode is by winnipeg's own poet laureate duncan mercredi I was listening to the radio 
I mean, not radio, but television. And uh, they were talking to a nurse in critical care in the States. And after she talked, I remembered a, a picture of my niece who works at the Health Sciences Center. And the picture she sent, I mean, she was all wearing her mask and the whole thing that you have to wear for protection. What caught me was her eyes. There was a lot of sadness in her eyes mixed in with fear. And that's when this piece came to me, and it's called, We Do What We Need To Do. We do what we need to do. We hold hands. We hold hope. We let them rest on us. We count the seconds that become minutes, that become hours, that become days. We do what we need to do. We close our minds. We ignore the tears. We carry the pain inside. We count the bodies. We count the empty beds, few and far between. We wait for the siren. We struggle to our feet. Sometimes we pray, even when they're not heard. The words comfort us. And when the sun comes up, later every day it seems, we remove our feeble armor, hold our feelings inside. We ride home in silence, scared to close our eyes. Nightmares shouldn't enter when the sun is shining, but they do. We enter a quiet room, lower the shade to make believe it's dark, and only then do we lower our heads and cry. And now we come to our most awkwardly worded segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who would like to start with book recommendations? Me? (laughs) (laughs) You go, Erica. I'm going to go. I would like to recommend to you Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Mm. Um, I somehow end up talking about this book a lot, but it is one of my favorites. Uh, Similar to the March sisters, the Mrs. Dashwood were well off early in their lives, but now must learn to live on very little in a much smaller house. They try very hard to be good, but their emotions sometimes get the better of them. They also think and talk about the world, their own life choices, They also think about the world, their own life choices, and comment on how different societal expectations and possibilities are for men than women. It was published in the early 1800s, so I feel like it may have had an influence on certain parts of the book of uh, Little Women. But yeah, if you aren't familiar already with Sense and Sensibility, please go out and take a look. It's a wonderful book. Just following up on Erica, who chose a book that may have inspired Louisa May Alcott, my book choice is something that I'm sure was inspired by uh, Louisa May Alcott's. My pick is, of course, Anne of Green Gables by (laughs) Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, It's Mm. published in 1908. I don't know if I even need to do a plot summary, but just quickly, Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert are brother and sister. They're uh, a gay nine in years, and they run farm and they decide that they would need help at the farm so they see if they could get a, a, a boy from the orphanage to come and help but you know it was a screw up and it was a girl and Shirley and uh, who comes instead and uh, before she's sent back to the orphanage uh, she wins everyone over it's uh, such a beautiful lyrical story it's full of descriptions of the natural world full of lush sort of sensory detail I'm kind of a new convert to the story. Uh, I read it maybe five or six years ago and just fell in love with it in the entire series. There's so many little parallels between it and uh, Little Women. Uh, just one example is when Joe gets her hair cut off, uh, she calls, or to sell, she says it was her one true beauty. And the reverse of that with Anne, she talks about her red hair being her lifelong sorrow. Uh, so if you if you haven't read Anna Green Gables, please 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 check it out. And if you have, read it again. Uh, it's even better on the reread. Uh, that's my book recommendation. Both nice. those stories rely a lot on the kindred spirits kind of yes. theme. Yes, mm-hmm. so finding mm-hmm. finding your your kindred spirits mm-hmm. in your family mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. yeah. On a similar vein, I guess I'll suggest if you enjoyed the close relationships of the March sisters and the historical setting. You might also enjoy Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. George and Lenny are migrant workers in California during the Great Depression, barely getting by, with dreams of someday owning an acre of land and a shack to call their own. They get a job on a ranch, and it seems that they're on the right trajectory. But like the Robert Burns poem says, The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glay. Of the books we had to read for English class back in high school, this was easily my favorite. 
The friendship between George and Lenny is beautiful, and the backdrop of the Great Depression adds a lot of color. It's a novella, so it's a fairly quick read. And the 1992 film adaptation with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich is extremely well done. But fair warning, the book is a tragedy and has a very sad ending. I'm a soft touch, and uh, I teared up just thinking about the ending, even though I hadn't read it in many years now. It's a heartbreaker. Mm. So if you're not ready for a good cry, <laughs> save this one for another time. But if you're looking for emotional connection and some catharsis, it really delivers. Ooh, that's a good one. Nice. Yeah. My uh, recommendation is actually a more recent book. And because uh, Little Women was really one that I related to as a sister with my sisters. So uh, my book recommendation also highlights sort of the strong sister bonds, um, the sister influences, the love that you have for your sister. And it is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Fowler. It is about Rosemary Cook, and she is the narrator. She is the daughter um, of a behavioral psychology professor. So lots of attention has been paid to her and her family by her father and grad students about developmental um, milestones. She grows up with an older brother who runs away and with a sister, Fern, who seems to Rosemary to have abruptly just disappeared um, from her life when she was around five years old. And this loss is profound. This loss of her sister, her best friend is profound. This loss of her sister affects her for the rest of her life. And she sort of is constantly then seeking out what happened to Fern. Uh, Rosemary is a wonderful, witty storyteller. And it's a really great book. And I would recommend We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Fowler. Oh, nice. Hmm. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, the part of each show where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word or phrase or whatever. <laughs> Who would like to start here, Erica? <laughs> I do want to go first because mine's ridiculous. So it's uh, Hasha Fashasha. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. Courtesy of a meme. You're going to have to repeat that. I will. It's courtesy of a meme that made me laugh out loud um, on and off for several days every time I thought of it. Mm -hmm. It was going around a little while ago. And it's um, it's from a tweet from at RallycrossRS. Do y'all blow on food when it's hot or do you hash a fashasha until you can chew it? Um, <laughs> so I feel this is self-explanatory and automatic repeat and onomatopoetic, but if you need a definition and source, it can be found on Urban Dictionary as hasha fashasha, the action of rolling hot food in your mouth until it's cool enough to chew, derived from the sound one makes while performing this action. So, <laughs> yep, I've been thinking a lot lately every time I chew anything about hasha fashasha. Nice. <laughs> I like it. That's great. <laughs> uh, my, my nerd word this week is also food-related, so maybe I could go next. <laughs> Uh, my word was inspired from Little Women, uh, the scene where Amy is at school and she gets punished and sent home. And the reason she's punished is she has pickled limes uh, with her that not only does she have for her own enjoyment, but she's been trading them. And I was like, pickled limes? What the heck? So I looked them up. Apparently in the 1880s, especially in New England, people would go nuts for them. You could buy them in uh, glass jars in candy stores. Some families bought entire barrels of them. That's sort of like the precursor to Costco, I guess. They, uh, they were neither classified as fruit nor pickle, so they were cheap to import, which uh, meant they cost as little as a penny each. And uh, they came in from outside the country. Nowadays, uh, you would think of limes and lemons coming from Florida, but that industry didn't really get started until after the time of uh, Little Women. <laughs> There's a quotation from a, a doctor in Boston in 1869 who declared pickled limes were among the unnatural and abominable substances uh, consumed by children. And it was also a real um, distraction because they were kind of sharing them in class and stuff. And uh, kind of, so they're kind of like an old-timey fidget spinner. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and apparently what they did is they pickled them com the whole thing completely in their, their skin and everything. They would just cut some slits in them, drop them in salt and then vinegar. And then like after a very long time, weeks, 
they were ready to eat. So pickled limes. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That whole part with the school bartering system and the like power dynamic was hilarious between Amy yeah. and the other girls. Like yeah. that was hilarious. So uh, my nerd word for this episode is inconsequential. Uh, defined as not important or significant, synonyms include incidental, insignificant, and trivial. Inconsequential is one of those words that's been stuck in my head for many, many years, uh, partly due to the meaning and partly because I love the sound and feel of the word. I've always been a sucker for a good polysyllabic word with multiple K sounds. The character Beth, towards the end of her life, talks to Joe about how she never imagined a future for herself beyond being at home, never expected to be anyone important, never expected marriage or the other things that her sisters dreamed of. The world was a bit too much, and she often felt overwhelmed by it, and she expected and seemed to prefer an inconsequential life. This really resonated for me because that's more or less how I've often thought about my own life. While other people dream of stardom, fame, accomplishments, travel, wealth, big families, etc., etc., I've never really had any vision about my own life and never particularly wanted anything from it aside from quiet contentment. There's a saying I heard many years ago related to low-impact hiking and camping. Take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. And I've always thought if I could exit this world without leaving a trace behind me, I would be content with that. I've never really wanted to make my mark. But life is complicated and interconnected web, and it's actually really hard to be completely inconsequential, even if you want to be. Beth's short life and tragic death was deeply impactful for her family, and my life, despite my best intentions, touches a number of other lives in various ways, some of them deeply significant. So as much as I would like to be completely inconsequential, I don't know if anyone really can be. We all have consequence within us, for better or worse. Inconsequential. Oh, we love you. I'm very glad you are not (laughs) inconsequential, Dennis. Yeah, really. Well, it's still a goal of mine, but uh, it just, yeah. I think you should forget that goal. Well, yeah, you're not trying hard (laughs) enough. You have a podcast now, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so my nerd word is in. Tarot bang. Lately, the last little while, uh, you know, we've been doing a lot of our communication with each other over email, text, um, and it's really hard to sort of establish kind of the, um, you know, the tone or excitement or, or, uh, worry or that, that kind of thing when you're just communicating through email. And then especially with, cause we're, we're planning on, on reopening soon, very gradually. And so we're excited about that, but we also have lots of questions about it. So I have a solution for, for you. It is called the Interrobang and it is a combination of the question mark and the exclamation mark. You put them together, one on top of the other, and it's called enterobang. So it asks a question in an excited manner, expressing excitement or disbelief, or asking a rhetorical question. And I think that the, the enterobang really kind of, I don't know, epitomizes my, my feelings these days. Excited, disbelief, <laughs> perhaps. So this, the interior bank was created in 1960s by, of course, an, an advertiser named, uh, Martin Spector. Other possible names that they were considering, um, was Exclamaquest or Quizding or the Exclarative. But they came up with the intero, uh, bang because the inter- interrogatio is Latin for rhetorical question or cross-examination. And bang is, uh, printer's slang for the exclamation mark. Um, it was very much in vogue, uh, in the 1960s, but it has not disappeared. You can actually still find the intero bang under the Lucinda Grand, uh, font. And the State Library of New South Wales in Australia uses it as its logo. So, interrobang is my nerd word today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much, dear readers, for joining us. Since June is Pride Month, we've decided to read Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin. It's available on Overdrive, so you can read it and listen to our discussion when that episode drops on the first Friday in July. Keep an eye out on our social media. We post questions a week or so before we record, and we want to get your opinions so we can talk about them. 
Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Have a book you'd love to hear us discuss? Let us know. We'd love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. We'd love it even more if you were to give us a rate and review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And by the way, if you haven't checked out Winnipeg Public Library's YouTube channel in a while, you might want to take a look. Our colleagues have been busy uploading a range of new and interesting videos, including some book recommendations, gardening videos, stories, and more. And until next time, make sure you find... Time Time to Read! Kirsten, should we wait till she gets back? I don't know. Well, I guess I could do mine, and then if she hasn't come back by then, we'll try to get in touch with her. Yeah, sure. Okay. I don't know. Is she sending any messages to anybody? Oh, she lost internet access. I think it's gold again. She said. I guess maybe good again. Or gone again? Or uh, who knows? You guys finished? It's really bad internet connection.